Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is 8 o'clock in the morning. I know. It's shockingly, shockingly early. But uh, I have a mission this morning in that I'm thinking of taking a job. And I want to test out the commute before I head off to my regular place of soon-to-be, hopefully, unemployment. The last thing I wanted to do, or want to do, of course, is to take a job and then find out that it's going to take me... I have a sort of 45-minute threshold for commutes. This is before I did podcasts, although even I would be, uh, I think, challenged to do two hours of podcasting a day, not to mention the hard drive space that would take up with the original WAV files, but we'll survive that. But I wanted to give it a shot and just see what it was like to commute to this place, so um, it's uh, not too, too far from where I work, so we're going to give that a shot and to see how it is. What it means, of course, is that I have to dip off the um, private road. I have to. We have a road up here called the 407, which I mentioned before, which is run uh, entirely privately. Although, of course, they have to use government union labor and all of that other nonsense to drive the costs up. But it is something that um, is privately run and it's fantastic. It's like hyperspace. Uh, very few trucks, because they have to pay quite a bit in peak hours, and so very few trucks, and. Uh, almost no construction during the day. Uh, this is a resource that is fairly costly. It costs me a couple hundred bucks a month, and it's competing against free. And it's also hobbled with regulations and government labor. But it just shows you how innovative companies can be, even when they you have to use government labor to compete against government-subsidized goods. And subsidy is a, a free goods. It's like calling communism a subsidy or a tax. But... Um, I think it's uh, it's a great road, uh, and I'm just sort of seeing. I'll have to leave it to get to the government roads, and so we will see if I drive straight into the big wall of jello known as state pro- uh, state uh, state planning when I leave this road on the way to this job. So, uh, this morning I'll just mention it briefly. Uh, I continue to be both interested by and baffled by the determinist position, and. It seems to me uh, that, and I'm certainly, I haven't had a chance to schedule this debate yet, but I certainly will be happy to do so. I would just love for once to debate with determinists when they, uh, and not have them use the language associated with free will. That to me would be, be fascinating, right? Because one of the things, and you can hear this in the debate yesterday, uh, well, I guess once I get around to posting all this stuff, uh, one of the things that you can hear is that they say, well, we should believe in determinism so that we can change the way that we optimize uh, society so that we don't punish people, but we can find them, uh, so that we change our approach, so that it's more humane and more effective. And to me, that's uh, that's wonderful. I mean, that's we uh, we have far much more in agreement than we do in uh, in terms of disagreement. I think that uh, if they say that we should evaluate the present and we should evaluate the tr- the facts in order to come to better conclusions than we would come to if we didn't evaluate the facts, and it's preferable that we evaluate the facts, and it's preferable that we go with the science and the indicators of uh, determinism and that we should do this in order to be able to further optimize and improve things in society and be more just and humane and so on, well, I think that's wonderful. Then I guess I'm a determinist, right? Because I believe that we should take the facts of reality and we should process them in order to be able to choose better outcomes in the future. I'm totally down with that. So I think that I sort of come to the conclusion that determinists simply have a different thesis around human nature, but they still believe that we should decide on things and, and choose to improve things and accept the facts to, to make more accurate choices in the future or come to more accurate conclusions in the future. So I just, uh, I've got to assume that we're all, uh, we're all on the same page. 
The only thing I can say is that um, I just find it confusing. I just find it confusing. Because people who are stone determinists, right, which is the determinists who believe that we have the free will of a rock, which is certainly some aspect of determinism, uh, it would seem to me that uh, debating is... I've never got over this, right? I never had it. Well, oh, I mean, we're trying to put new inputs into your head, but there can't be new inputs because everything they do is determined, everything I do is determined, and it's all kind of like a... You know, it's like a, it's like a pretending to be excited by a sports match when you know that it's fixed, right? Maybe you don't know who's going to win, but you sure know it's fixed. And we all know the IQ of those who follow worldwide wrestling. Anyway, I've sort of come to the conclusion, I'm happy to debate this further, uh, a little bit more individually, but... The determinists and I are in the same... I mean, we're in the same framework of we should be more rational, we should be more cognizant, aware of, and subjugate ourselves more to the facts of reality, and that if we accept those premises of using the scientific method on everything, then we're going to make better decisions, and the reason that we should do that is uh, that we, we should make better decisions and be more cognizant of reality and get rid of our fantasies and all that kind of stuff. So we're totally on the same page about that. They just have a different thesis, which is going to re- result in some slightly different conclusions. One of the conclusions I see it logically resulting in is that the idea of preference is uh, foolish. It's like preferring a lion isn't going to eat you when it's hungry and you're tied to a stake in the middle of the uh, Transvaal in Africa. But that's, uh, that's my perspective. But they certainly are arguing and debating and saying that we ought to improve things and be more cognizant of reality so we can make better choices. And, uh, you know, the only thing I can say is that we seem to be copacetic on that score. We seem to be entirely in accordance with it, and uh, I'm certainly going to follow the science of determinism eagerly, and I'm going to look forward to the day when it can swing to, rather than being descriptive, uh, swing to being predictive of human behavior. And it's a little different from the way that uh, economics works. I mean, economics is predictive of human behavior insofar as all other things being equal if the price drops significantly then people will want more of a good that they can't overconsume, right? I mean, like, like oxygen. You can't overconsume oxygen. You tend to pass out, right? You breathe, you're standing there and you breathe like you're just running a marathon, then you're going to pass out. But goods which can't be overconsumed, which are desired, and where the optimum uh, consumption rate has not been achieved, if the price of those goods drops significantly, people are going to buy more of them. And even if they can't consume them themselves, if they believe the price dip is only temporarily, they will buy them to resell the blader at a higher rate when the price goes back up. So there are predictors in economics to human human beings. Human beings generally will follow self-interest. And that self-interest can be defined individually, but it's also defined in a generic sense. And so in economics, there is predictions of human behavior. And of course, in the, I guess, the art slash science of developing a product for consumption by others, there is a lot of predictive behavior that's brought into play or brought into being around well, we have to sort of study what the client wants, uh, what the client wants. We have to study what's missing in their arsenal of things that help them do better business, make more money. We have to do a cost-benefit on the cost of developing this thing. We have to have a test market. We have to have an advertising budget. We have to figure out how we're going to pitch this thing. We have to have a couple of clients so that we know it can be sold before we even think about launching it as a uh, full-wide rollout of commercial viability. So there's lots of things that go into developing a new product, which are all designed to reduce the risk. I mean, theoretically, you could just type a bunch of random code, wait for it to compile, and throw it out as a product and charge a million dollars, and it's vaguely conceivable that once every 200 universes you might get the next big thing, but we could say that that's a tad risky, right? That's like putting up the random word generator and waiting for some great poetry to come out 
It could happen, but it just seems like you'd spend as much time reviewing the poetry to find the good stuff and piecing it together than you would just trying to find someone who had a, a strong poetic sense or sensibilities and getting them to write it. But uh, So there is some, some degree of reducing risk, which is to increase the predictability of uh, behavior. So reducing risk is important, and the way that people reduce risk is they attempt to figure out what people want and then attempt to provide it to them in a way that is sort of cost-effective and so on. So economics does include the predict, uh, predictions of behavior, but they don't predict the stimuli, they only predict the response. Right? So, I mean, this is where determinism and economics sort of part ways. Because economics will say, if the price of a Maserati gets cut in half, all other things being equal, people are going to buy more Maseratis. What economics doesn't say is, next February, the price of a Maserati is going to be cut in half. Or at least, if an economist does say that, he's probably going to get sued by Mr. Maserati or <laughs> whoever's doing that kind of stuff. So that's an important consideration to understand uh, as a significant difference between that, right? I mean, what determinism is focused on is making uh, psychology a, a subsection of physics in the same way that if determinism is true, then biology is also a subset of physics in that everything is fixed and uh, preordained. Not preordained by somebody outside, but just preordained the same way that if you throw a rock off a cliff, it's sort of preordained that it's going to fall down. But everything then becomes a subset of physics. And, I mean, I fully understand that it gives you a kind of tidy and neat conceptual framework with which to view the universe in that you don't have awkward questions around how can consciousness be self-reflecting and self-generating. And the answer to that is, well, it's not. It just thinks it is. It's just an illusion. It's like, a, it's like when, you're, um, when your mind produces dreams at night. It's just an illusion, right? You're going to do what you're going to do, but then you're going to invent this thing called it's a choice. And I, I mean, maybe at some point we can do this in the debate. I'd be curious to find out why we would develop something like that. It seems like a lot of overhead uh, within the mind to come up with all these illusions about choice, which a jellyfish doesn't have to bother doing, but it seems to me interesting. It would just sort of interesting to figure out why we have this. I mean, certain biological aspects, you have to sort of figure out why, uh, why we had it. Now, it's not that hard to figure out why we have religion, because people profit from religion. And religion is used to justify the uh, transfer of resources and the control of choices from the uh, lower orders to the upper orders. So it's it's an exploitive fantasy. It's like a you know it's like a Ponzi scheme, or it's like uh, selling you a good that is supposed to be a weight loss regimen, and then it turns out to be water, sugar water, or, or, or something like that. Or it's like water with NutraSweet in it, at fifty bucks a bottle. Uh, it's just a kind of illusion like that. And they're selling you something that they can't deliver. They'll deliver you something that's a weird sort of substitute for it. But uh, So for, for religion, it's a pure transfer of resources. That's And of course, there was an enormous amount of ignorance, and people they had a desire for answers before they had a methodology for answers. And I think that was fairly that's fairly significant. Uh, people want uh, answers about why is the sky blue and where did we come from and so on. And they wanted all of these things before we had any kind of methodology for figuring them out, so people just came up with very bizarre answers. And so I can sort of understand why we have religion. I can certainly understand why we, had a, why we have a state. Uh, it's exploitive, and uh, you know, parenting is bad. And the science of ethics, much like the science of knowledge, uh, was uh, pretty wretched for most of human history. And, of course, the science of ethics uh, now, I would say, with the exception of some areas of thought, I'd like to put us down for that, but of course that's up to you. The science of ethics is also at a very primitive, uh, a primitive place, 
within the world. And that's just something that we're sort of doing our, our best to uh, try and change. But uh, I can certainly understand that in the absence of knowledge, uh, in the absence of wisdom, in the absence of methodology, uh, exploitation always grows in the valley of illusion. I mean, this is where exploitation and illusion would go hand in hand. And uh, they both feed each other, as we've sort of talked about with the reciprocal relationship between the needs of the people for being subjugated and the happy coincidence that subjugators are always delivered uh, seemingly on time and, uh, and to spec, so to speak. But the need for these kinds of illusions seems to me fairly clear. The need for the illusion uh, or the benefit of the illusion of free choice, I don't quite get it uh, myself, but it's certainly something it doesn't prove or disprove. It's just an interesting thought experiment. But I certainly would be curious to hear what people say about this, the need why human beings have this uh, belief, universal belief in free will, near universal belief in free will, and why the mind would produce this illusion of free will when it is, in fact, an illusion. To me, it's just an interesting question. It's just something uh, interesting to figure out. That having been said, let's turn our topics to other issues, or I guess central issue, which is that I have been plowing my way through a book called uh, The End of Faith by Sam Harris. And I would say that the first quarter or first third is good reading. It's good reading. I wouldn't say that it was any great shock to me. Uh, there wasn't a huge amount that was eye-opening to me, but he's a good writer. I mean, and that goes a long way in my book. I'll even read people with silly ideas who are good writers because style is just delightful, right? And he's, he's a good writer. Uh, he's got a slightly ironic, slightly detached Pomo humor side, which uh, is actually quite enjoyable. And he is uh, pretty good at uh, discussing the two major uh, outbreaks of religious uh, slaughter, uh, hysteria, or genocide, which is the Spanish Inquisition, which, if you pause on the descriptions of the tortures, is very, very hard stuff to figure out. Now, I myself have a kind of... Oh, um, I don't even know how to put it, really. I have a kind of involuntary empathy... So when I read uh, descriptions of torture, uh, so for instance, when I read about one of the tortures that went on, sanctioned, of course, completely by the Catholic Church uh, during the, uh, the Inquisition, uh, one of the tortures was that you would uh, strap, and this was used, of course, later to good effect. I don't know if George Orwell knew about it, but it's similar to what went on in Room 101, 1984. So they would get this wire cage full of mice, and they would strap it to your belly, so that the, uh, it was sort of like a wire bowl inverted with mice in it that would be attached or put against your belly so that mice would be sort of standing on your belly and, and then what they would do is they would start to put fire onto one side uh, onto the, the top side of the bowl such that you would end up basically uh, with the the mice trying to escape the fire they would end up having to chew through and burrow through your belly right I mean in this this kind of agony can only be scarcely imagined and when I read about this kind of stuff, I find it very difficult. I, 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 I feel the urge to skim and just go, oh, yeah, okay, bad stuff. Well, that was bad. Uh, let's not, okay, let's keep moving. But that's not really very, um, I guess you could say, very just or fair because these people and thousands upon thousands of people did go through this particular problem or horror or evil, I would say. And what... I feel is I sort of instantly and almost involuntarily, or I would say involuntarily, I really can't control it. I immediately put myself in the position of somebody who's strapped 
to a table and who's having this wire mesh. And no pleading will do any good, right? I mean, there's lots of stories about how uh, people who pled for uh, survival or mercy in God's name did not have any luck in getting any kind of clemency or mercy from people. So what occurred was uh, they just would, uh, people would just sort of kill them anyway kind of thing. And that wasn't really uh, something that... Um, uh, was uh, reasonable to uh, expect to change, right? I mean, they, it sort of went on thousands and thousands of times. There's no mention anywhere of anyone stopping. But so I put myself in this position, and I feel the little rim or the indentation of the wire cage, and I feel the mice sort of the, the pitter-patter of the feet, the, the mice feet on my belly, the little tickle on my belly hairs, and I see the flame approaching that the mice are terrified of, and I... I feel all of that stuff, and then, of course, I feel their urgency, their growing squeaks, all of the stuff that is going on that, uh, to me, is just the sheer horror of the situation. I feel it, like, really, really deep down in my gut. And that is very hard for me to <laughs> to stomach, so to speak. Uh, some of the other tortures that are mentioned, I won't go into them here because it's all, it's all sort of pure sadistic uh, sadism and evil. But some of the other tortures that are mentioned, uh, I also physically quail, feel nauseous, feel uh, like I sort of have to stop reading and take it in, it's in gasps, because I really do sort of feel the uh, the horror and the terror of the situation. And I mentioned one other one, right? So they've, they've sort of boiling you, so they put you in a fire, but what they do is they keep liberally dosing your legs with fat so that you don't burn too quickly. I mean, that's sort of their, uh, their goal, to keep you alive as long as possible to help you... Uh, I mean, the best you could hope for was to be strangled before you were burnt. And I'm sure if you bribe people, you would get that, that solution. And when he talks about the Holocaust, uh, he, has, um, he doesn't go, of course, into the tortures as much, because they're fairly well known to anybody who studies this kind of stuff at any level. But the two chapters are... And they're, they're tough reading. They're very tough reading. But they are very instructive in terms of helping to understand what it means to be uh, involved in a theocracy. Uh, at the uh, at the back end or at the random end, right? And so this kind of torture, this kind of hell on earth that uh, he associates with religious thinking, and I think uh, rightly so, with untrammeled religious thinking, right? I mean, religion is calm now because we've calmed it. It's not calm because it is calm, right? <laughs> we've drugged it, so to speak. It's like a, a tiger that's been drugged, and we say, oh, good kitty, right? But as soon as that soporphoric wears off, we may not be uh, in such good shape, so to speak. So... He's uh, excellent at that kind of stuff, I think. He's, uh, he's good at figuring out uh, some of the epistemological problems and the metaphysical problems, and, of course, the problem in ethics that occurs with this kind of stuff. He's very good at that. And, boy, oh boy, you love that stuff. Then, where, oh where, oh where does he go? Well, my friends, he goes into politics, and uh, he goes into ethics. Now, I'm still plowing my way through the ethics stuff, so I'm only going to briefly... Actually, I won't even touch on that. But what I will do is say that, yes, he is, in fact, talking about the, uh, the ethics uh, of the situation. And sadly, of course, where he goes with all of this stuff is, you know, what we need, you see, is a world government. What we need is a world government. And then he also has some particular approaches to U.S. foreign policy, wherein he says, yes, there's lots of bad things that the U.S. government has done in terms of foreign policy, but they're still fundamentally different from the Muslims, uh, from the Muslim governments, because the attempt, uh, the, the, the goal or the ideal of the U.S. government is not to kill innocent civilians, whereas the goal of the Muslim terrorists is to kill innocent civilians. And this is the kind of stuff that you just see asserted without evidence. 
And I just, I mean, I find that stuff kind of fascinating. I'd hear somebody who's like, well, we've got to be rational. We've got to go with the evidence. We've got to deal with what is real. And in ethics, he says, motives count a great deal. But of course, motives are very difficult to prove. Right, so he's sort of saying that uh, if I, as I mentioned yesterday, if I turn over in my sleep and hit you, is a lot different from standing up and, and punching you when I'm awake. So motives count a great deal in ethics, and so he says that the motive for the Muslims or the Muslim hordes, the Muslim terrorists, is to wipe out uh, infidels. And so there are no, you know, we're all infidels. There are no innocent people, and so so. And I understand that, and I think that's fairly accurate. But then he just says, well, but George Bush would never, if he had the option for perfect weapons which, uh, boy, what a oxymoronic phrase that is, right? If, he, if George Bush had the option or had the capacity for perfect weapons, then George Bush would deploy those, like without a doubt, George Bush would deploy those weapons so that only combatants got killed. Only combatants got killed. And he would for sure not aim it at, um, at civilians. That, to me, is quite fascinating. Uh, and this shows uh, something I'll get into a little bit later, but I'll sort of say why this is, uh, I think, problematic. Uh, his analysis of the Muslim world is, is very good, I think, and uh, I've been meaning to get to Islam for a while. Uh, it just takes a little bit more study than I've had time for, or I've chosen to make time for lately. But uh, it certainly his analysis of Islam is very good, and of course its medieval nature, and its brutality, and its hostility, and its expansionism, and all that. It's all, all good stuff, in my opinion. And so he's very rigorous in terms of analyzing somebody else's religion or somebody else's uh, group. And I think that's wonderful. And he has, though, of course, the demographic that he has to appeal to, which is uh, patriotic Americans who have problems with Islam. And so the way that he treats, basically, his, his base is liberals, right? His base is liberals in that uh, they, they know that something is wrong with Islam. They're skeptical of religion. They're willing to give up some of the things that uh, he's, he's uh, opposing, like multiculturalism or cultural relativism or whatever. And that's fine. I mean, that's, that's realistic. I mean, a lot of people gave up cultural relativism when it turned out that they were actually being attacked. You know, uh, that's, that's something that uh, helps you understand the courage and integrity of intellectuals, that they're all about cultural relativism until uh, America gets attacked directly, and then uh, they're... Well, against it. <laughs> oh, wait, I'm, I'm at risk? Oh, heavens, no, let's not do that then. If it's not poor GIs from the South who are at risk, uh, then I, uh, I'm not so much for the cultural relativism, so let's get back to this absolutism thing. So he's got a base, right? And I don't know if this is something that he worked out with his publisher or something that's just sort of innate to him, but he'll say sort of openly that George Bush would not, in a million years, it would be unthinkable for George Bush to press a button and target people who were innocent civilians, and the only reason that civilians get whacked is because of the imprecision of the weapons. The only reason that Iraqis are dead is because of the because of the imprecision of the weapons. I mean, it's a rather fantastical statement, really, when you think about it. I and mean, we'll just let's just play around with that for a minute or two. Just and I'm, you know, I understand where the guy's coming from. I mean, he's a He's a philosopher. He's in Harvard. He can't sort of talk about uh, uh, real things all the way through, right? He's got his constituents, and he's got to try and make, make sales of his book. And, you know, there's economic imperatives wherein uh, people are raised by the state, and so they kind of have to, uh, in order to sell anything to the general population, you have to appeal to their prejudices. Well, the first thing that strikes me as interesting about that is the unproven nature of the assertion, right? I mean, if somebody's going to make a claim about somebody else's moral intentions about murder... The first thing that I would sort of ask for is that 
there's some sort of proof, uh, validation about this kind of stuff. Somebody who's making claims about the motivation uh, of somebody who's responsible for the deaths of you know, hundreds of thousands of people, I would sort of say that uh, maybe a little bit of proof might be in order. Right? Proof is important, especially if you're trying to get rid of religion, right? If you're trying to get rid of religion, what you want to do is try and uh, prove as much as possible uh, and uh, not take uh, anything in, on faith except free will. Just kidding. <laughs> but you want to really try and be clear about that. Uh, with with sort of to, for your understanding, that sort of would, would be the way that I would approach it. But of course, he just says this uh, as an assertion, and that to me is rather remarkable. Uh, the second thing, of course, is that it could well be said that George Bush is not so interested in saving any form of Iraqi lives, you know, based on the basic premise or the basic fact that he invaded Iraq and has killed I don't know upwards of 140,000 Iraqis. And I'm using the word he rather loosely here. He's sitting comfortably in Washington with photo ops and uh, movie stars. But he did, after all, invade Iraq on uh, false pretenses. And it's fairly clear to everyone now that they were false. Uh, they were known to be false up front. Or they certainly weren't known to be true up front. Uh, an enormous amount of supposition from people like Chalabi and so on. So what I would say is that I, I wouldn't really, even with with the cursory review of the evidence before us, that... George Bush is all about saving Iraqi lives and would never harm either uh, civilians or non-civilians, uh, would never harm uh, non-combatants if he could avoid it. It would seem to me rather specious because the way that I could see that he could potentially, theoretically, have avoided uh, killing uh, Iraqi civilians would be to not invade the goddamn country in the first place. That's just one logical possibility that might give rise to some skepticism about, say, George Bush's uh, uh, innate uh, pleasure in the idea of uh, saving human life as much as humanly possible. That's, I guess you could say, just one possibility. Just a possibility. Now, the other thing, of course, is that he's very concerned about George Bush's Christian tastes, so to speak, that he, uh, he keeps appointing all these Christians to the highest courts in the land, and that he himself is uh, sort of a fundamentalist Christian, and therefore has uh, this sort of stated interest in Israel, that the Christians uh, want to keep Israel alive so that it can be blown away in revelations, all that kind of stuff, right? So he's got all of this kind of uh, stuff cooking on, uh, George Bush does, and he is invading Muslim countries because God told him to. But then, of course, Sam Harris says uh, that George Bush could never conceive of harming uh, civilians. I mean, if he had any option whatsoever, then he would never, ever harm civilians. That's just a fantastic thing to say. But, of course, this is part of his um, need for a solution that involves authority, right? People, people can't conceive of a solution right, that doesn't involve authority. I mean, we're very primitive in this way. Uh, we really don't understand solutions. And, of course, it's understandable in the, in the Middle Ages that this is going to be the case, right? That you're going to have a little difficulty picturing solutions without a central authority in the Middle Ages because it never existed in history, right? So I can understand that. But, oh my heavens, now we have had the example of the free market for 200 years. I mean, is it really that hard to think of solutions without central authority? Is it, is it really, really, really just mind-numbingly difficult to imagine this kind of stuff? And that's sort of the problem that I have, that people just, oh, it's bizarre. It's like, well, uh, every solution that we have to every kind of problem involves coercive monopolies. Although, 
I didn't use a coercive monopoly to get into Harvard, although I'm not using a coercive monopoly to print and publish and distribute my goddamn book, <laughs> although I'm not using a coercive monopoly to get on TV and promote this book, although I'm not using a coercive monopoly to get people to buy my book, still, every solution that I'm going to come up with, in a theoretical sense, is going to involve a coercive monopoly. <laughs> I mean, you see just how silly it is when you... And I swear... People in the future are going to look back on this stuff and just wonder what the hell happened to human brains during this phase in our history. Because I can look back at the Middle Ages with a good deal of sympathy and say, well, yeah, I mean, the answers kind of didn't exist. And so uh, that's kind of a problem. So I can understand that, uh, that people didn't really get the whole hang of the free market stuff or a voluntaristic or pacifistic solutions to problems because, uh, well, uh, there was no such thing in the world. There was no model that people could turn to. But nowadays, you know, it's like now, I mean, I could understand disbelieving in the ocean if you're born in a desert, but boy, oh boy, I just can't imagine disbelieving in the ocean when you're drowning in it. That just seems completely bizarre. And I guess it's because we have academics that are so isolated from the free market. I couldn't really tell you. Maybe it's because they're so subjected to authority in terms of you know, getting published or maybe their review committees. Or I mean, grad school is not exactly the most entrepreneurial of environments because your only audience are uh, sort of monop those who have a monopoly of power. Maybe it's something like that. I'm sort of trying to be as charitable as possible. But uh, just putting out this idea that... Uh, the monopolistic uh, central authority uh, of violence is the only solution to the problem of violence. I mean, this this is just astounding to me. It's not too. It's not astounding in terms of it's kind of inevitable, right? The moment you see bestseller, you know it's full of nonsense, right? That it's going to have some facts that are interesting and some arguments that are good, but that uh, that the solutions are always nonsensical, right? Because as I mentioned yesterday, uh, however you think it's written, you can have a look at this free domain dot 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 com. If you're trying to come up with any real solutions, then you need to uh, uh, be, be prepared for some rejection, let's say. Be prepared for some uh, people not... Because everyone's got a constituency that they're trying to please. I sort of try and think that I don't. I mean, I could, but I don't think that I do. The constituency that I'm trying to please is uh, the truth, and as I've talked about, my conscience, right? <laughs> my sort of conscience, which goes haywire if, uh, um, if I sort of veer from the truth, but, uh, and of course, rational arguments, and uh, so on. But uh, this guy's got to get the, uh, the truth out there or the answer out there that appeals to socialists, right? He's basically, this is a kind of warmed-up communism insofar as he's anti-religious and wants a world government. I mean, this is just communism, right? I mean, this is exactly what Marxist fantasy was, right? You get rid of religion so that you don't have a competing eschatology or ideology and then set up a world government because uh, competition is bad, right? Uh, competition is bad between the state and the church, and competition is bad between governments, so we need a world government, as Sam Harris puts it, so that there's no more chance of war between Pakistan and uh, India than there would be between Texas and Wyoming. Of course, there. it's like he'd never heard of the Civil War or the War of Northern Aggression or whatever you want to call it, and uh, he's also never heard of people who've tried to secede uh, and uh, he also doesn't really understand that America at the moment is in a state of legal civil war in that uh, everybody's trying to grab the taxpayer resources from everyone else, and so uh, that's really not uh, a viable uh, approach or option, I think, to say that we desire uh, to have a state of peace in the United, like similar to that which we have in the United States, 
which is the fantasy that if you have a strong enough central authority, you can eliminate disputes and everyone can live in peace and harmony. And this is, of course, just somebody that we can certainly understand what his childhood was like because he thinks that uh, an excess of authority will solve the problems of violence. A, uh, a grave disparity, like the greater the disparity in peace and violence, uh, sorry, the greater the disparity in power, the greater the peace that occurs, which means, of course, that the ultimate peace is a gulag or a concentration camp um, where I think there was only one uprising that I can think of, one of the Jewish uprisings in the Polish ghetto, I think it was. But uh, there really aren't any once you get into the realm of uh, gulags. I mean, Solzhenitsyn, there's no, uh, no mention, at least in the stuff that I've read, uh, no mention of uh, re- revolutions in, uh, in that kind of stuff. So this is just his fantasy, right? And this is his fantasy because so it's, it's essentially socialistic in nature. And I'll certainly plow my way through to the end of the book. This is sort of my premature conclusions, or to some degree premature conclusions. But that's sort of where I'm coming from, and I think that it's important to understand that you get this kind of nonsense in all populist works of fiction. And I always find this kind of frustration, you know, as I've said before. You're, you're trundling along with a thinker, and, and for me, it's like despite myself, despite 30 years of, or I guess 25 years of reading this kind of stuff, you still have some sort of hope some sort of hope that that they're not going to go haywire at some point, that there's going to be uh, some kind of rational follow-through, right? There's people set up all of these rational things. Like, they attack the things that they don't like and then defend the things that they do like, but they call it rational, right? So this guy is all about attacking religion, which he doesn't like, and then he's all about suggesting that the solution to it is a world government uh, because he likes government, right? But it, he's just arguing emotionally, right? I mean, and... This, I mean, I'm fully aware this could be the case with myself and free will. Right? I'm open to admitting, open to admitting it, open to debating it, but still waiting for, for, of course, for evidence. But that's sort of a pretty important thing to approach, I think, just to understand that most people, when they're arguing, they just have preferences and dislikes and they make up reasons for them. And sometimes those reasons are very good. Right? This guy's argument against Christianity or religion or, you know, the, the problems. Uh, he doesn't work so much with metaphysics or epistemology a little bit, but he's very focused on the argument from effect, right? So his, his argument is sort of that, well, if we have this ideology that is based on killing unbelievers or subjugating them, then uh, the moment these guys get a hold of weapons of mass destruction, we're going to have a big problem, you know, more or less, on our hands. And that seems to me perfectly uh, perfectly reasonable. <laughs> it seems quite like a realistic proposition. And so his uh, argument or potential uh, possibility, possible future, is something like this. So he says, so in the future, we have the uh, some Muslim government gets hold of long-range nuclear weapons. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to have this kind of fairly large problem in that they've sort of committed to our destruction. They don't fear death themselves. In fact, they view the fear of death as something uh, contemptible and weak. So they don't fear death themselves. And so won't we sort of assume that they're just going to nuke us? And I don't think that's true because, of course, the leaders... <laughs> the, uh, don't fear death is only for the, uh, only for the followers, right? It's not, it's not for the leaders, right? I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but... Uh, that's just something to understand. It's, it's not something that every Muslim believes. It's just something they teach people who they want to uh, to control. It's an, important, it's an important consideration, let's just say. So that's not going to happen. But he says, of course, that you know, a first strike against a Muslim nation that has suddenly come into possession of long-range nuclear weapons could be a defensible uh, moral thing to do. And, of course, that's going to provoke even more. And uh, this war clash of civilizations, as it's called, 
which is kind of funny, right? Because we associate our civilization with our government, which is a fundamental error, right? Government is the enemy of Western civilization. Western civilization has progressed to the degree that we are willing to get rid of governments, right? And then saying, well, our government is better because it's Western is ridiculous, right? It's like saying the cancer is now part of her health because it's gone into remission. No. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, it's so, uh, now we're not healthy because we have a cancer that is in remission, right? We'd rather not have a cancer at all. <laughs> so this is just a f sort of fundamental and, and obvious mistake that uh, people make in this area that they do end up with this uh, situation wherein they associate uh, freedom with uh, the government and progress and peace with the government and so on. It's all, all complete silliness, right? All complete lunacy. And another thing that I find quite fascinating and uh, somewhat inhumane, if not very inhumane, is our dear friend Mr. Harris's approach to the problem of combatants versus non-combatant. His sort of basic idea is that uh, George Bush would never, uh, the American government would never injure non-combatants if it could possibly avoid it. This is like literally one page after, one page after he admits to the, uh, the death, direct death of a half a million Iraqi children because of uh, U.S. sanctions. He doesn't quibble the number, he doesn't quibble that they're a direct result of U.S and uh, UK sanctions, but uh, this is his, uh, his sort of fantasy uh, approach, is that, yes, there's these half a million children who died, but George Bush would never do anything, and America would never do anything to directly cause the uh, injury of non-combatants. Now, to me, though, it's rather specious, and uh, I would make a pretty strong argument for this, that to divide into combatants and non-combatants is bullshit, frankly. To me, I don't know, except for a couple of, like this John Lind fellow, there's a couple of people who do this, but it's really very few, who just go and join because they love the idea. And, of course, these people are probably just mentally ill or sociopaths looking for a good place to go kill and get medals, but there aren't a lot of people who just up one day and say, you know, I would volunteer for that army, even if all they gave me was bread and water. If they didn't pay me, if they didn't train me, if they didn't give me education, if they didn't give me... Um, money for a university or college, if none of that occurred, I would go and fight for this army anyway, because I just love the idea of the army, right? So I've talked about this in, on my blog in the article called The Soldier's Freedom, but to, to say that, uh, well, there's no draft, so people are there voluntarily, it's kind of specious, because economic opportunities are denied to them, because the governments run the economy into the ground, especially in the low-rent manufacturing sector. They're being heavily bribed with taxpayers' money stolen from other people and handed out to these people. So it's, you know, probably one of the few opportunities they feel that they're going to get. They're lied to about what life is like in the army. They're lied to about how long they have to serve. They're lied to about the risks. I mean, they're just, you know, they're lied to about everything. And by the time they sign up, of course, it's far too late to do anything about it. So uh, I would say that it's important to not sort of think that there's, even in a non-draft army situation like the United States that it's all voluntary and, and kumbaya and they just love to fight and that's why they're there. No, there's a lot of bribery and lying going on. And if you did that kind of stuff in the, uh, in the free market, right, then like if you try, try and sort of imagine this, right, so you hire people promising them a huge salary and you end up paying them a pittance and you hire people with the promise that they won't have to travel and then they end up having to travel 50% of the time and you also release false earnings and false earnings projections and false past earnings in order to get stocks up, but well, you're going to go to jail, right? Of course, the army can use all of these tactics and more for a far more nefarious end than causing people to lose some money, sort of lose a limb or 
you know, I, I'd lose everything rather than lose an arm, right? I, I can earn back the money, I can't grow back the arm, so that to me is a fairly significant. But I would say that you can't sort of look at people in the military as, you know, well, they volunteer, blah, 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 they're heroes because they volunteered. No. If, if, if they volunteer because they're heroes, then, of course, we would not say that heroes are exclusively made up in the ranks of the lower class, mostly minority, disadvantaged population who come from uh, very bad educational situations. Right? I wouldn't say that heroism is the result of being born in a trailer park and being educated at some pitiful government school and being fed propaganda your whole life and having no economic opportunities. Uh, we can call these people heroes. I just call them cornered. But, uh, of course, if they really were heroes, then we would expect that as one's education went up, one's enlistment to the army would go up because we would assume that virtue has something to do with knowledge. But, of course, quite the opposite occurs, that those who have more education never go into the army, which, of course, must mean that those with the most education are the most cowardly and corrupt and least heroic. And George Bush, uh, not badly educated, I guess, so relative to the soldiers he's sending out, he would be far more immoral, blah, 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 right? So please don't make this mistake. Now, that's just within a non-draft situation. This is an undraft situation. Now, let's have a look at it in terms of skybombing the shit out of the Iraqi army. Right? They send up their B-52s and unload carpet loads of bombs, truckloads of bombs over these poor bastards huddling in the desert who've been dragged from the farm, who've been handed an ancient, rusty, probably broken Kalashnikov with very little ammo, if any, all of which is perfectly useless against B-52s cruising at 15,000 feet. And they're just sitting there huddled in their bunkers in the dunes as bombs go up around them and bunker bosters throw their uh, friends' limbs in the air and calling these people uh, saying, well, we can kill them because they're combatants versus non-combatants is really funny. I mean, it's sad and horrifying, but it's got a kind of grim humor to it, right? It's like calling somebody who is uh, grabbed in a hostage situation, right? So some bank robber grabs a teller and drags her to his car, it's like saying, well, we can kill her because she's part of the gang. Right? <laughs> she's in the car, so she's part of the gang, so let's just kill them all. No, we do understand that people who are kidnapped are not necessarily part of the gang. And given that just about all forms of warfare in the world are kidnap situations or bribery situations with little alternatives for the people as a direct result of prior government actions... I think it's a little specious to say that there are these people, see, and they are combatants because they're carrying a gun and are willing to shoot us, and there are these other people, see, who are non-combatants because they are women and children and don't have the guns and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, it's a hostage situation. It's like, <laughs> it's kill or be, you know, it's kill or be killed. Right? These people who are uh, end up in the Iraqi army who are bombed by the B-52s or, you know... There was almost no particular firefighting that went on. Uh, these people are not combatants in any sort of reasonable sense of the word. Uh, they're just poor bastards who are dragged out and given a gun and told that they, they either fight or, you know, you go fight or we're going to shoot you now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are people we can kill because, boy, are they ever voluntary combatants who just hate the United States. And I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? Armies are just... They're wars of puppets. I mean, as far as that goes, right? I mean, uh, people in the army are just fed propaganda and bribed and lied to and bullied and you know, have no other opportunities. Because the moment people do have other opportunities, then the army, they tend to not go into the army, right? So there are puppets on that side. And so basically you have, you know, the bribed fighting the coerced. I mean, that's, that's the great noble differentiation between these two armies. 
you have those who are bribed through the use of violence fighting against those who are coerced through the use of violence. And this is the great noble heroic army battle that, that we see, right? It's just a bunch of deranged puppets fighting each other for the whims and profits of the masters, right? I mean, this is it's ridiculous to then say, well, I'm going to divide these people into combatants and non-combatants and feel that it's okay to kill the combatants, but we shouldn't kill the non-combatants. It's like, oh, okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that seems reasonable. So the guy who gets killed by Saddam Hussein is a non-combatant, but the guy who's trying to survive by huddling in a bunker as the bombs rain down about him, clutching an old rifle, he's a combatant and we should kill him, right? I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And so these kinds of statements are pretty sad. And this is somebody who's obviously had some training in, uh, uh, obviously, modern political philosophy. And he's obviously had good training in, decent training in logic, I would say. He still has no idea how to go around building a science of ethics, or at least based on the two chapters I've read on the science of ethics, that hasn't occurred yet. It may occur as we move forward in the in the book. I, I doubt it, but we'll see. Right? His, basic, uh, his basic approach to ethics is, uh, you know, we, we should do that, which maximizes human pleasure and minimizes human suffering, all the u- utilitarian nonsense that that goes on. And so he no longer uses, uh, he can't solve the problem that ethics don't exist in nature, and so we can't ever come up with anything other than pleasure, the pleasure pain prin- principle, which obviously is relative, is relevant to ethics, but is not the deciding factor, because otherwise ethics would be totally fragmented, because people's pleasure, pleasure pain mechanisms are widely distributed, let's say, across uh, the planet. And so I would say that it's important to understand his limitations. It's a good book to read because it's very instructive on a number of levels, and I will go into it in a little bit more detail. I think it's worth, because it sort of combines so many eras of, uh, of socialism that uh, uh, it just is very instructive to see how hard it is for human beings to give up on collective illusions, right? So this guy's anti-God, but he's pro-government, and he's pro-world government, right? Like, he doesn't even want a bigger government at home. He wants the ultimate world government, right? The uh, the Zog or whatever it's called by these paranoid people, but it's just uh, it's funny uh, and uh, it is the kind of stuff that we're fighting here. And this, of course, is the kind of thinker who gets uh, you know a post in Harvard, and uh, uh, that's important to understand. But the culture is from that point as well, right? The moment somebody's popular, you've got to look upon them with suspicion, let's say, because they're appealing to a particular demographic, which is not well-informed and which is sort of simply seeking to have its prejudices confirmed. So we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later. But uh, so thanks so much for listening. I uh, appreciate it. It wasn't too bad a commute. I think I'll be able to take this job if I want it. About 45 minutes and I'm about 35 now. So just think a little bit more podcasting until I can find some way to do this (laughs) full-time. Thanks so much for listening. Um, Sorry that the website is down. I have a listener who's trying to give me a hand and unfortunately... Uh, He was not able to finish his job last night, but I'm sure we'll get that up and running pretty soon. Thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you soon.